forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and proud New Yorker, despite having lived in Los Angeles my entire adult life. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and owner of Celtics merch, even though I was only in Boston for three years. Hello! Fancy! Yeah, for someone who was only there for three years, I really said a lot of my work in Boston. <laughs> well, Celtics are a basketball team? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Was I right? No, you're right. There you go. Do you have any teams that you are a fan of, Allison? I guess the Yankees. Okay. Because it's like <laughs> my my birthright. I don't know. Like my dad, my parents have always been Yankee fans. And now John is like a Yankee fanatic. Really? Oh, my God. Obsessed with the Yankees. So that's good for him bonding with your dad. Oh, yeah. They have a lot to talk about. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> That's great. When he was in New York, there was one night where my dad was playing an online poker game and John sat and watched him for two hours. See, okay, this is good. Does John like online poker? (laughs) Yeah, my dad was like giving him tips and like showing him what he was doing and why and like all of this stuff. And it was very adorable. My mom and I just watched Arrested Development downstairs. (laughs) Oh, that's great. It's like, I feel like, you know, sometimes for for older men, it's like you got to bond with like sports or some sort of little hobby or whatever. Yeah, they have a lot in common. And my dad also got to show off quite a few magic tricks. So it was a successful vacation. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It's so interesting, too, with like my sister and my dad and like the way that they didn't really get along when she was younger. But now, like all they talk about is the Miami Heat. And it like somehow. Yeah. And it like it like has healed things. It's like worked. (laughs) Well, honestly, I I I. I get now as an adult why people are into sports because it is like you're part of this community. And like mm-hmm. I've gone to like three baseball games this season, which for me is like out of control. And like there is something fun about like when something happens, being surrounded by a bunch of other people that are really excited that that thing yeah. happened. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, I remember being very interested in when when Gondelman and I were dating my ex who was a guest on the show and I were dating uh, in Boston like he would tell me the backstories of the players Mm -hmm. and like it was always like a soap opera it was like he was raised by a single mom in a car and now he makes millions of dollars like I was like more interested in like the the up-and-coming stories of these players than like what was actually happening oh totally they're like oh this person like doesn't really they're not like a super good player but they're like you know maybe like third string or whatever and I was like he's my favorite and they'd be like well why is he your favorite and I'd be like he has such a tragic story to get to where he is like and that's they play that up with the olympics too right like you just hear the 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 stories of triumph of these like you know gymnasts and stuff and like that's what i'm latching on to you know what i have gone to that i think people should go i've gone to a lot of wnba games in the last year oh so fun amazing there was one woman i went to an la sparks game and there was a woman sitting in the very front like by the court losing it screaming and like getting so involved and we were like who is that is that someone's mom like what is that it was Vivica A. Fox (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that. <laughs> anyway, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. I just think it's so lovely to be excited about anything. <laughs> <laughs> I want to care about anything as much as Vivica A. Fox cares about the LA Sparks. 110%. <laughs> we have got a great episode for everyone today. We have a guest who I've wanted on the show since the show began, so I'm so excited it finally happened. Dr. Jennifer Gunter, um, who you might know as, I'd say, the most famous gynecologist on the <laughs> interwebs. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk to her all about um, vaginas, vulvas, all this kind of stuff, sex education, but also the anti-abortion laws that are happening in Texas. Uh, she was a very timely unfortunately timely guest and later we'll be discussing fostering pets and why it might be worth the potential heartache and hassle did Uh, i pull this from my personal life absolutely yeah you're fostering (laughs) something right now right something um no i was fostering a a pup last week but he got adopted so oh cute okay but first we have to Answer a listener's question, and you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Ash, upstate New York. Specific! We love it. Which is different than where I'm from, which is Westchester County, but I'm not going to go into that again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, zipped. I'm zipped. I have no more... No more comments on the geography of New York or New Jersey. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so Ash writes, First, I want to say how amazing your show is. Your dynamic is electric, and I always find myself laughing and nodding in agreement. So thank you. So nice. Okay. My question is, should I care if my father won't speak to me anymore? My dad and I have always had a tumultuous relationship. He's a classic narcissist and has been gaslighting me most of my life. I've tried very hard to continue a relationship with him, but after having my now 16th month old kid, I find myself not caring as much to keep things going. The big issue happened about a month ago when I found out he was posting pictures of his grandkid on social media, even though I told him that we didn't want her online. I texted him and my stepmom a long message about how disappointed I was and how disrespected I felt. He hasn't responded since. Thank you for reading. <sighs> okay. I think about this a lot in -hmm. terms of certain family members. Um, In one instance, I have felt good about lately meeting this person where they're at and not casting so much judgment on them, but still being aware of like my own hurt feelings and but just knowing that they are not the person to fix those feelings. And so like it's actually felt better to be honest with them and meet them where they're at and not try to expect more of them than what, not delude myself into expecting more from them that would lead to disappointment. Like not being like, well, I want them to behave this way. I'll, I'll give them a like a chance and they don't behave that way. And I'm sad versus like going into the relationship being like, this is what they're like. This is how I'm going to get the most good out of it. And just not uh, letting it, affect me. However, there is someone else in my family who sounds a lot more like your dad, who I had to cold turkey cut off. And it sounds harsh. And people definitely have come to me and been like, 
how could you do that to this person? And my life has gotten so much better because Mm -hmm. that is someone that not even at the level of meeting them where they're at, was I able to feel safe and comfortable and like heard. So it sounds like your dad is a little bit more similar to, I don't know why I am vague. My, I have an older brother who I'm estranged from and I'm not, I don't communicate with, not Jason, brother who's been on this show, other brother. And I've been estranged from him for a couple years, three, maybe three years, two years. And that is a person who sounds a lot like your dad. That is a person who went past my boundaries, blew past my boundaries, took me setting boundaries personally, and was gaslighting me and and twisting my brain around and was in a lot of ways like abusive in different ways. And I just don't have to interact with that person. Like, and I think it's harder if maybe you are financially connected to your dad in some way, but it doesn't seem like you are doing this thing where you go, well, you know, give them a chance. Like, I don't know. Is it as bad as I think? Because you have labeled, you're like, this is a narcissist. This is someone who's gaslighting me. I felt disrespected. So you, Ash, actually like you've answered your own question in some way, you know, you know, you're not like debating. Am I being too harsh? He's my dad. Should I, you know, should I feel because of a, a blood familial bond that, that I shouldn't feel so disrespected by these things, but you already know this person is not going to change. So you have to decide now how much access that person will have to you. Yeah. I think that the really interesting part here is, is the question that you're and the way that you phrase it. Should I care if my father won't speak to me anymore? I think right there that the, the sentence starts with should is a signal that like, just a reminder that there are no shoulds, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that you're going through this really intense emotional experience and wondering what the proper way to respond to it is. Mm -hmm. But there is no proper way. I would say that I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that there will be times where it bothers you more than it, like there will be days where it really bothers you and there'll be days where you don't really think about it that much. Like from what I've gathered about people with, difficult family members, a lot of times it's pretty cyclical. Mm -hmm. So this might be a phase where you're not talking to him. And in six months, a year, maybe you will be talking to him again. And so Mm. I think what might be helpful is just removing the judgment from the situation, adding in the self-compassion that like, this sucks. It sucks that you have such a difficult relationship with your father. It sucks that he broke your boundary. It sucks that he's not replying to you. But but in terms of how you should feel or what you should do, there are no shoulds to it. And it and it will really just be a process of you either daily or weekly or maybe monthly checking in with yourself and saying, okay, how do I feel about this right now? Mm-hmm. In this moment today, do I feel like making the effort to reach out and rekindle things? If the answer is no, you go on to the next day where maybe Mm -hmm. you ask yourself that. There is no perfect guideline for how Mm -hmm. to navigate these kind of like dysfunctional family systems. And so all you can really do is like be honest to yourself in the moment. And you might be in a phase where right now for like the next three months, it's just way easier not to talk to him. Right. But if you start to realize three months from now that like you are missing him and it is affecting you more, then you can reassess. But 
I think taking it day by day and sort of like taking that pressure off of yourself that there is a way to feel about this. There is a specific way to act around this. There isn't. You get to decide these rules and you get to feel however you end up feeling. Yeah. Just because he's your dad doesn't mean he's owed any part of your life that makes you uncomfortable. And you can't control his reaction, but you can control the boundary that you want to set. You don't want your kid on the internet. You made that clear. You said that. You expressed how it hurt you. And now you just have to let go of whatever he's responding to it with. He's going to be immature and ice you out. Okay. Like you said what you needed to say. You know, I think there's also an aspect to two people like this, family members like this, where they don't actually want to interact with you as a person. They don't want to hear your wants. They don't want to hear your boundaries, but they want to look like a good person on social media. Mm. Like that's kind of an aspect of it. And so like posting the kid is like saying like, look, I'm a grandpa, like I'm a good whatever. And I think also there's some element of sometimes grandparents feeling like they know more about the kid than and not letting the parents be the parents or like not letting the parents make decisions. I think it's just up to you how much access he has to the kid. He can't post pictures he can't take. (laughs) So like, I think, and I think also once you have a kid, I've seen this happen a lot where like people are estranged from their parents, but then once they have a kid, they're like, well, they should know their grandparents. They're not owed seeing the kid. Totally. But I also think that there might be a desire to minimize what's happening and to be like, okay, this person's been so difficult for so long. Like my day-to-day life is easier. So therefore it's not that big of a deal that my dad's not talking to me. But the reality is, is like, that kind of is a big deal. And like, you should let yourself process that. You should let yourself grieve that. You might want to go to therapy just to sort of like talk that through. Like there might be this initial relief that comes from stopping the communication. But when you do have a estranged family member, that is a big deal in a lot of ways, like even if you don't really realize it at first. And so I, I guess my advice would be just to make sure that you're caring for that part of you and that you're, you know, like, even if right now, it just kind of feels good and like free, that like, there's the possibility that this might kind of sneak up on you and to care for yourself when that does happen. And to, you know, many things can be true. It it can be the right decision to no longer talk to your dad, but it can still also be a really hard decision. The background on my phone is literally a quote that says, it's okay to be sad while making the right decision. Yeah. That's literally what it says on my phone. Oh, that's amazing. It sucks. Like, especially if you come from a dysfunctional family and you start to see where it's that's not normal. It really sucks. It's It hurts. You're missing something that is like kind of fundamental. And it just, it's not fair and it sucks. Mm-hmm. So letting, letting yourself have the space for that too. You yeah. know, but then also just like, again, that this will probably change how you, you know, you might feel differently one day than the other day. So just sort of keeping in check with yourself. And if you are in a phase right now where it just feels really great not to be talking to him, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to let go of how someone feels about you, right? Like my brother, who I'm estranged from, I talk shit, like absolutely is like pissed at me, talk shit about me, like whatever. But I just had to like let go of any guilt attached to it. Right. Which, like you said, the shoulds. Like, I think you can let go of the guilt, but I think you can also 
acknowledge that it's sad, like we said, that it's it sad. Sucks, it sucks. You know? Yeah, it sucks. Well, we hope that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Dr. Jennifer Gunter. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week, our guest is Dr. Jen Gunter, an internationally best-selling author, obstetrician, and gynecologist with more than three decades of experience as a vulvar and vaginal diseases expert. She has a book, The Vagina Bible, which me and Allison luckily got to have and read. And The Guardian calls her the world's most famous and outspoken gynecologist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so funny. We have so many different guests on the show, but I'm I'm definitely feel like I'm talking to a real celeb here because I've just been <laughs> following you for so many years. And I, I think that you have just like started so many important conversations about healthcare and about our bodies and the need to better understand our own bodies. What sort of made you transition from a doctor to more of a public figure? Uh, well, you know, I think I've always had a loud mouth. That's <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that I, like, maybe like a lot of physicians was very, you know, dismayed about the low quality of information that's out there. I think the COVID-19 pandemic is a, just a great example of how that is still an ongoing problem and of how the internet can be an amazing place for health. And it can also be the worst place. It can be both. And mm -hmm. the line between the two is not always defined. And I just uh, began to think that how, and this was a long time ago, maybe like 12 years ago, I guess, was that why is all this content online being written by non-doctors? Why mm -hmm. is this information sort of being filtered down through editorial viewpoints, you know, and all of this information that we have as not just as gynecologists, as doctors, but, you know, in my field, obviously, it's gynecology is, you know, well, how are we in this place where we have this amazing library and yet people know so little about how their bodies work? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's a failing. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to fix the medical internet. <laughs> so here I am. Um, it's also sort of horrible but interesting timing that we're interviewing you this week when there have been all of these um, abortion laws and, you know, what's going on in Texas. What have you been hearing or doing about that? Like, have you just been overwhelmed this week? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we all had a little bit of hope misplaced, obviously, that the Supreme Court would do the right thing. And this idea that, you can have basically forced birth vigilantes reporting people for providing medical care, standard medical care. And yet somehow it's okay to give iver ivermectin for COVID, right? Like it's just mm. so like the cognitive dissonance here about, you know, you know, recognized evidence-based healthcare um, being illegal. And the fact that, you know, this is where Trump told us we would be going. And this is a promise that he delivered on. And he was working with the people who had this goal in mind, who plotted it all out. And I think we're sort of at the end of a very, well, not at the end of an awful story. We're at the end of a chapter of a very awful story. And so, yeah, it's been a bit, it's been a bit difficult. And I have to say a bit disappointing, the lack of sort of federal leadership about, they knew this was coming. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and even if you don't have a great plan, just telling people that you're aware that there's a problem and we need to do something about it is, you know, that's leadership. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult time, but you know what? It just means that we have to regroup. We need to talk to people on the ground in Texas, sort of the local organizers to find out what they need. And we need to, you know, put on our thinking caps and move forward. What as a doctor, when you're seeing the anti-choice people talking, what are you struck by as like they're uh, misinformed? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. It's no different than any other misinformation. You know, they have three or four talking points that are poorly thought out um, that are just wrong. Um, It's propaganda, right? So whether it's anti-mask propaganda, whether it's forced birth propaganda, it's really the same thing. And so, you know, this they spew the same lies about, you know, abortion hurting people, you know, which of course is far safer than childbirth. So all this concern about health seems to evaporate when it actually comes to pregnancy that gets maintained. So yeah, so they have these same talking points. And it's really this idea that it's clearly there as a punishment, you know, these awful laws are there to punish people and, you know, to maintain poverty, to keep people in poverty. These are long-term sort of political strategies the awful hypocrisy is, is if they actually cared about reducing the rate of abortion, we know what does that, you know, affordable, accessible, free, really conscious, long acting reversible contraception. It's, there's really no, um, there's no mystery. I mean, obviously there are still people who are going to have, you know, congenital anomalies or medical complications or rape or other situations where there, that was either a planned pregnancy or there was no way, you know, to protect Mm -hmm. themselves because they didn't plan on being sexually active. But the vast majority of, you know, abortions that result from unplanned pregnancies could be prevented. So it's just the hypocrisy. Yeah. And you spoke a little bit about this in your book. Well, you have two books, sorry. (laughs) But uh, just like how the healthcare system has been sexist from the beginning. Can you speak a little to that? Sure. Well, you know, medicine reflects society and society, you know, doctors are just people and society reflects, society has been sexist since the get-go, right? And if you think about medicine has certainly, you know, viewed the female body as being lesser, right? You know, if you having a uterus is a sign of being toxic, you know, you, which is of course ridiculous because really like a fetus grows in there, but it's toxic. Like how, how does that happen? How did you with your big male, super massive brain been so amazing? How did you grow in this toxic swill of a uterus? How did that happen? (laughs) Right? Like it's just, it's so ludicrous. But you know, if your world order is that the classical female body is dirty and disgusting and lesser, you can twist your medicine to fit it. You can twist anything to fit it, right? I mean, yeah, so menstruation was toxic. You know, the sort of the cisgender men could sweat and manage their fluids and they were perfect. They were, you know, they were the Greek, they were the gods basically among people. And, you know, as, as, you know, pathetic women couldn't manage our fluids, right? So that's where we had to have this stop valve of the uterus to kind of let the toxins out because, you know, we were so poorly constructed. What? Yeah. And, you know, menotoxins, you know, they thought, they thought women could wilt flowers, um, menstruation caused rabies. Uh, you could, that's a lot of vampire myths come from menstruation, you know, you know, women who menstruated could, um, you know, take the silver off of mirrors. I mean, and I, you know, so I said in my Ted talk, okay, so wait a minute, we had all these ex women superpowers, but (laughs) we didn't bother to get the vote. I'm like a little bit confused here. You know, oh, I wish AFAB people were witches, but here we are. Yeah, I know. This is like, really? So really, you think that we, we have all these toxic superpowers, but we didn't use them to sort of 
like have world domination. That doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. And you still sort of see even in companies that that say that they are pro, you know, female form that like that the vagina needs help cleaning itself, right? That's something we see a lot in wellness. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So the feminine hygiene industry, it's awful words, feminine hygiene, I hate those words, um, because obviously the implication is that you're dirty, that, you know, that, it, that, that you also have to be feminine, you know, all these sort of, it's layers of awfulness, but yeah, the feminine hygiene industry. And we used to think about it in terms of sort of big feminine hygiene, like douche companies, right? And a lot of this sort of started on the idea that, you know, your body is toxic, so you got to clean it. Um, many of these products were also promoted for, uh, as abortifacients. Again, they, they weren't effective, but that's what they were promoted as. Um, so it's sort of that crossover that, you know, it's your job to manage your periods, right? Meaning it's your job to keep yourself from being pregnant, certainly not your partner's job in any way to refrain. But we see this, all of the same language, this purity culture language, which was part of the feminine hygiene industry. We see in wellness all the time, pure, clean, natural you know, so many wellness products to balance your vaginal pH, which, you know, it's not possible to do. You know, we see Yoni steams, detox pearls, all this sort of scammy stuff. I mean, wellness, you know, as it's marketed for women's health, you know, is, is largely, or vaginal health is largely a scam, you know, because it doesn't need it. Your vagina doesn't need anything. <laughs> yeah. I went to a Korean spa with some friends who, you know, are with it and and progressive and all of this stuff. And they had like a vaginal steaming room and they were like, oh, we almost did that. And I was like, don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? like, I feel like that messaging hasn't quite hit mainstream that this stuff is like dangerous and not necessary. Well, but also too, it ties into the belief that the vagina is dirty. If you need mm-hmm, to steam it, right. then it's dirty. So even having the words up there is toxic. Having people walk by and see that, it's no different than walking through Target or Walgreens and seeing those shelves and shelves and shelves of Summer's Eve and whatever awful names they have, right? For, you know, for this so-called cleansing, all these ritualists, basically it's very ritualistic. And yeah, so it's no different. The implication for every one of those products, the implication is, is the vulva and vagina are dirty and you better clean that up. Is there an overlap between like, anti-abortion and wellness? Well, certainly, I mean, there's a lot of overlap between sort of wellness and what I would call extremism Mm -hmm. and on both sides, right? So it's very interesting, you know, when I write something about the the COVID-19 vaccine being an accurate piece, I get attacked by two groups of women on Instagram who look exactly identical, except one is a natural loving mama and the other is a Jesus loving mama. Uh-huh. You know, when you get very fringe, uh, you know, ex- extreme right, and extreme left, you know what, you're, you're at the same point. It's all about control. It's just, you know, they're using na- God and nature interchangeably, right? So the Jesus loving mama is controlling you because that's what Jesus wants. And the nature loving mama is telling you it's the natural order, right? But they're the same things. They're just, and they don't, you know, they don't really sort of realize they're the same, I suppose. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, and it's again, ignorance, um, lack of information, lack of knowledge, you know, again, trying to make something fit a world order, you know, this idea that, you know, that nature is benevolent is a joke. Look at what's just happened in New York this week. You know what? Nature brought those floods. Obviously climate change probably has a lot to do with it. Nature's burning up Tahoe right now. Nature gives us cancer. Nature gives us all kinds of awful things. And we also evolved a big brain to try to, you know, maybe actually do better. 
I'm constantly amazed, even though I shouldn't be, by how often your posts and your writing is attacked by people who don't have any credentials. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it like to constantly have your expertise be questioned publicly? I guess, you know, opinions are like assholes, right? Everybody's got one. (laughs) One of those old sayings that is sadly still true. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, right? So when people are just, well, you're not right, or well, in my, my personal experience, and I think this is part of the problem is that Social media is very good because it ties into social and we're very social creatures in general and stories tie us in. You know what? That's how thousands of years ago, you would have found out where the water hole was. You you know, we would tell stories. We, you know, we have this collective need to share stories, you know, whether it's in person or, or to read about it or, and we, we do, most of us love a good story, right? So social media ties into that. But the problem is, is, you know, people mistake a good story for factual information. And, you know, great, 2000 years ago, when there was no other way to get information from A to B than word of mouth was all you had, and you didn't have any science or you did not have enough science to understand the world as, as you were living in it. But, you know, science changes. And that's, I think one of the big issues is that change is frightening to people. And so the idea that science might be different two years ago and from now, many people view that as being, well, how could you be right? As opposed to, well, you know what, when you learn more information, you should change. Mm -hmm. And the analogy I always give people is imagine when your pilot took off in this clear skies and he had a flight plan for clear skies. And then midway, he gets a radio that there's a big storm ahead. Don't you want him to change with the new information? Or do you want to just keep flying and say, well, <laughs> when I took off, it was clear skies, right? I love that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So, you know, so imagine you're flying a plane and someone's coming up to you and saying, I don't care about that new information for the storm. You fly straight ahead because when we took off, we were promised it was clear skies, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like that. And it's fascinating to be attacked, you know, by women. I mean, I, you know, several years ago, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and her buddies were, you know, trying to tell me that I was like overly confident about women's health. And I'm like, bitch, I'm the fucking expert. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That is the most patriarchal thing in the world is to tone police a female expert. Like, what are you even talking about? So, yeah, I mean, it's hard because there's all these science-ish words and we don't teach biology enough. And so all you can do is sort of keep trying to make a difference, I guess. Well, I was just saying, like reading the vagina Bible, you know, you start off kind of explaining the anatomy of like female genitalia and all that. And I, and I even felt, I was like, this this is overwhelming to me. <laughs> I was like, as soon as you throw in those science words and like, even just like the distinguish between the vulva and the vagina and the thing. And like, I was like, oh, I can see why it's easier to just like incorrectly just call it all a vagina because it feels scary to like not really even understand your own body. Yeah. I mean, but imagine if right from the get-go, everybody was using those words. I mean, you're able to understand very complex things about many other things, right? And so it's only, it only seems complex and scary and difficult because you're, you're not used to it. But Mm -hmm. I mean, look at a recipe. Think about all the complex things you have to navigate. You have to figure out like, okay, am I going to weigh this? What's a tablespoon? Or if you're going to change your recipe, you're going to convert it. Ooh, do I use baking soda or baking powder with buttermilk? Like if you're a cook, you know all those things. I always think about, think about all the incredible textile art women have done since the beginning of time, like weaving or knitting or all these incredibly complex patterns, right? That's no harder than learning about medicine. It's just, it's what's familiar. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask in terms of education too. So like, what do people not realize is normal? And I'm talking about in terms of like discharge or whatever. And then what do people think is normal that isn't normal, like like pain during sex? Yeah. Um, so yeah, discharge. That's a big one. I just put a video up on TikTok last week where I showed my own underwear with discharge. Apparently like that's the first time that's been done. I don't know. I mean, I had like 2 million views already. It's crazy. And all the comments from people, like they just had never seen what normal is. So if you don't know what normal is, then you think you're abnormal. So I think discharge is the one that everybody is worried that there's something wrong when there isn't. I mean, obviously there are medical problems, but a lot of people are worried about their normal discharge. Hence the feminine hygiene industry playing into that. Hence, decades, centuries, thousands of years of toxicity, right, about the vagina. So that all plays into that. That's this generational weight. So I think that's that's the one thing that a lot of people think is abnormal that isn't. Um, and then, yeah, pain with sex. Sex should not hurt. Um, inserting a penis, inserting a, you know, a vibrator, inserting fingers into your vagina should not be painful. Um, in the same way, like opening your mouth and putting a toothbrush in shouldn't be painful, right? And so we're having a bowel movement shouldn't be painful. All these things shouldn't be. Um, and so the fact that it's been sort of normalized as, as being like, okay, or not a problem, you know, one is a huge part of medicine. That's a problem. People being told to just have a glass of wine, or, I mean, it's awful. There's a, there are diagnoses to make on treatments, but also the way people talk about it, you know, or even talk about sexuality. I mean, there's some people who I see who have pain with sex and I'm like, well, tell me about your foreplay. And they say, well, what's that? Mm -hmm. And, and sex for them is literally, literally their partner rolls over and stuffs his penis in. Right. Then sex might be painful in that context, um, you know, and explaining that. And here we are in this supposedly open society with, you know, all of these internet tools. And yet someone is still at that because if you make sex dirty or shameful, where are people going to get that information? Right. And where are they going to realize like, oh, this is actually not. I can actually, I should go to the doctor for this. You know what I mean? And right. also maybe the ability to tell a partner, like, do, I don't want to do penetrative sex. And like, that's perfectly normal and fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, communication, I think is the key to this. And it's amazing to me how many people can have sex with their partner, but not talk about sex with their partner. Mm -hmm. Right. And I said, people, you know, sex is a form of, it's a physical form of communication. And, you know, if you, if you can't talk about it, then maybe that's a skill to learn because often people are dying to talk about it. They're just because of all this awful cultural oppression, patriarchal oppression, and these ideas that we've incorporated People are afraid to talk about it. But often when people start talking, the other person's like, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been <laughs> wanting to talk about it, right? So, you know, creating these safe spaces to talk and, you know, getting away from, I mean, you have to imagine like every single thing we see in sort of the popular press isn't quite the right word, but like standard Hollywood movies, the, you know, standard TVs, that kind of thing, you know, gives people a perception of a very... Of, a, of sex that is not like that, right? You know, there is a couple of minutes of gazing eyes and then all of a sudden, 10 seconds after penetration, there's the most amazing, you know, loud orgasm in the whole world, right? Like the most, it's the most artificially created thing. And people believe that's normal. People yeah. truly believe because we don't talk about it. So I always say to people, okay, so what about when you watch, watch the Fast and the Furious? Do you think that's how people drive cars? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a movie. And you know what, we need to change those images, because those images are really geared for an incredibly narrow, um, sort of part of the market, and they're also damaging. And so 
people, if you can't talk about sex, then people look for it in the other places and the Mm -hmm. places we're showing them aren't really reflective of how the majority of people want to be having sex. How do you recommend someone starts these conversations? Like, I would imagine it would probably be best not, you know, like not during a time when you're being intimate, but like at another time, like how do you kind of start when you're like afraid to talk about it? Well, yeah. So talking about it during not good, you know, like for example, if you wanted to eat a different dinner, would you say that while you were being served the dinner that your person had made for you? Or might you sort of think about it on another day in the morning, say, hey, you know, and again, you know, same, instead of saying what you don't like, saying what you like, what you would like, Um, because sex is about pleasure, using your I words, what I would like, and also not talking about it afterwards either, you know, so this is like an, this is a non-bedroom discussion. That's Mm -hmm. really, that's, you know, assuming not everybody obviously has sex only in their bedroom, but you know, you want to, I always tell people kind of want to leave the bedroom as a safe space because in general, that's where people are having most of their sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, or if you're not, you don't want to be lying there next to them fuming because of the conversation you had because you got to sleep too, right? <laughs> yeah. And then another thing I wanted to talk about was how do you have difficult conversations with your doctors? You know, if like you're having issues and you're feeling like you're not being heard by them, like, do you have any advice for that? So, yeah, well, I think that, you know, if you feel like you're not being heard, I always tell people it's a good idea to really think about what are the problems that you want fixed or what would you like to go away? If you had a magic wand, like Mm -hmm. just take pain with sex, for example, and start with that thing. Like, you know, I have this symptom. I have pain with sex. I have vaginal discharge and I'm worried about it or it's painful. I don't want it to be painful. And then, you know, I think that every question you ask should have an answer. And if someone says, well, I don't know, or that's just the way it is, unless they've given you sort of a a reason why. So for example, I might have someone who comes in who's very worried about their vaginal discharge and they're sure their vaginal discharge is abnormal. And maybe they've even seen three or four doctors who reinforce that by giving them antibiotics when they didn't need it, right? Who kept sort of reinforcing that. And they come to see me and their discharge is perfectly normal. It's perfectly normal. And, you know, I've tested their pH. I've looked under the microscope. I've seen their, you know, that they've had a negative yeast culture. And so I will explain to them why it's normal, right? So no, Mm -hmm. so you shouldn't just say it's normal. You don't, you shouldn't worry about it. You should be able to say the definition of abnormal is this. I've done these tests and you don't take off on any of those abnormal. Plus all I do is look at people with vaginal discharge all day long and, and your discharge is normal. I have no motivation to tell you that it's normal when it's not because I treat lots of people with abnormal discharge, you know? And so then at that point, you know, if what you're hearing doesn't sit right for you, then you're probably not in the right physician patient sort of connection, but also too, I mean, in the same way that, you know, so if it's, if somebody gives you an explanation for what's going on that you can understand, then, then you've probably forged a good bond. But if everything you're hearing, you don't understand or you don't get it or you don't feel like you're being heard, then you just might need a different style of communication and that's okay too. You know, I've seen people who I have not been able to get them to, to believe what I've told them and they go see another doctor with a different communication style and that's it. That's great. That's what they needed. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask about like, since you've been practicing for a long time, how the medical world has changed as there's been more visibility for trans and non-binary people. Um, like how has sort of the language shifted and how has, you know, what is it 
like now to be seeing more, let's say, like trans men or trying to feel inclusive of trans women? Like I'm an AFAB non-binary person. So I was just sort of haven't been to the gynecologist since I came out. So I'm just curious what what that's like. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, certainly I've been caring for trans women with vaginal issues for a long time back. Mm -hmm. I've been doing vaginal health since I started. And so whether you, you're a trans man with a vagina or a trans woman who, you know, has a vagina that was constructed. I mean, if you have a vagina, I'm happy to see you. It's for me, it was like all about the, you know, if you're having a vaginal problem, I'm the person to help you. Um, And so, you know, so I've sort of always come at it with that approach, but now that there's many more people so that, you know, back in the day when I was doing that, you know, for example, if people needed gender affirming surgery, they were almost always leaving the country. Right. Right. And so, you know, that was a very, a very different time or certainly where I lived in Kansas, they were almost all leaving the country. But now, you know, like for example, where I work, we have, you know, we have clinics that are, Mm -hmm. you know, where people can, you know, get all their gender affirming care with people up to date on the guidelines, because it's very hard to be up to date on absolutely everything, Mm -hmm. especially in a field that might be, you know, more rapidly changing because there's a lot more data coming in because it's some of these guidelines I think are relatively new. And so, yeah, so I think it's been great to see clinics that are dedicated to treating people where they feel comfortable. I think Mm -hmm. that's, you know, it's great to see, you know, like on our computer software, it tells us what somebody's pronouns are. Like it's just right up there. So there's no like question. We just, you know, you don't have Mm -hmm. to ask anybody. And so I think that in many ways, it's great to see medicine respond to the needs as of people as as it should that's mm-hmm. really what it should be and i think that more inclusive language brings more people to the table and i think that we're generally always stronger together mm-hmm. so i also wanted to ask about um like aging and menopause oh, you have a book about that as well mm-hmm. so like what is the fear and like i feel like people use menopause as like a joke a lot Yeah. I mean, menopause has unfortunately been the butt of a lot of jokes because, you know, what's the worst thing you can be in society? A woman. What's the second worst? Well, what's even worse than that? An old woman, right? Yeah. You know, and so, because you can't breed anymore and you're not attractive to men anymore. I mean, because what's the worst thing in the world for a woman to be not attractive to a man, you know? So that's what that all comes from. And if you think about it historically, if the uterus is the seat of toxicity and you need to menstruate to get those toxins out, what happens when you don't menstruate? Well, those toxins build up and you get unhealthy. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah, menopause is is an amazing evolutionary adaptation that has propelled us forward as a species and it needs to be reclaimed as such. That's what I would say. We've looked at menopause through a lens of negativity, because that's how we view, you know, a cisgender female body, right? Like that is toxic. It's bad. It's wrong. It's different. It's other, you can use whatever word you want. And so if men can theoretically keep reproducing till they're 80, I mean, most don't have sperm. That's good enough. Right. But you know, they all think they can't, there's a cliff. If you have ovaries, then people have looked at ovaries as a sign of state. That's a sign of failure. But the adaptation is it's very helpful to have another pair of hands who isn't involved with reproduction, who has Mm -hmm. done with that phase of life. So if you think about it, tens of thousands of years ago, longer, whenever we sort of branched off from our closest ancestor, there would have been a few people who lived beyond their ovarian function, who were then able, their, maybe their youngest child would have been 10 and they had a 20-year-old who was also having children. They'd be able to help. And they would then be passing on 
those genetics for longevity to the next generation. Because studies tell us, you know, when there was a grandmother who could help, there was more offspring. And that was it. And there's also some very interesting data that suggests the way young children are so social and so, you know, engaging. And we all look at them and go, oh, you're so cute. That that actually evolved to bring the grandmother connection in. Because Uh. you want to be, you need to be cared for to survive. You know, the classic sort of so-called maternal instinct to look after your child is sort of, that's already programmed in. The grandmother doesn't have that. But if you get all the cute little, oh, look how cute that is, then you want to take care of that. So, you know, the grandmother-grandchild connection helped to drive, you know, social evolution, helped drive longevity. And this has been somehow obviously spun into a negativity, but it's an amazing, important part of evolution. And, you know, you really need to think about it that way. And even many of the symptoms of menopause can be challenging for people, but they get better. But I always remind people, you know what, symptoms of puberty can be challenging and symptoms terms of pregnancy can be challenging, right? We have these other normal phases that have challenging symptoms. So that's why we have big brains. So we can figure ways around that, right? Um, But even with brain fog, which a lot of people do report during their menopause transition, they still outperform men on the testing, memory (laughs) testing. I think the other big time where age is really playing a role is like, Um, with fertility, right? And so as like a 32 year old who hasn't yet attempted to have children, like this fear of like this ticking clock, how do you think is like the best way to approach talking about that? Do we have unrealistic expectations in terms of like, what actually is a geriatric pregnancy? Is there, are you a proponent of people freezing their eggs? Like, how do you think it's best to talk about all of that? Well, I don't think I'm, I can really answer your egg freezing question because I'm really not an infertility expert. That's a whole separate conversation about how many people actually use those eggs, what happened, you know, so that's a whole different conversation. I'm not up on that data. I think that there are hard realities of reproduction and that, you know, it is true that, you know, once you are about the age of 40, the chance of getting pregnant each cycle is about 5% you know, without help, which is significantly decreased from, you know, when you're 30. But we also have these expectations that, you know, people are in the peak of their career, maybe, and have all these other things going on. I think really the the answer or some of the answers to that is, well, you know, what are the reasons that some people might delay childbearing? Well, they're financial or they're educational. Well, what if we restructured society in a way that people didn't have to make those choices? right? Mm-hmm. What if all educational programs had childcare? What if both partners, if you're in a coupleship, were expected to take time off? You know, what if we could change society in a way that allowed people who want to get pregnant to not delay them? And then how can we expand science to help people who want to delay to get pregnant when, when they want to? I think it's also important that people, you know, kind of have that information so they can make choices. But I hate viewing it as a biological clock because there also are, are many, many fertility tools to use. And there's many ways to have a family, too, that we shouldn't be tied to one particular, you know, model of how a family happens. But yeah, these are questions, I think, to have with, you know, your doctor and a Anyone who has any questions about, you know, freezing the rights should really be speaking with a reproductive endocrinologist who's a fertility expert. Uh, how important is pubic hair? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I'd like to I'd like to live in a world where 
where pubic hair is not a subject of discussion. You know, we talk about it so much for women um, and we don't talk about it at all for, you know, for men, right? Like they, they don't have all these products. You know, why does one group of people have to remove their pubic hair and the others don't? You know, I think that pubic hair medically is important. It maintains the moisture in your vulvar skin. It's a love layer of protection. And it's probably also involved in the sexual response because each nerve, each hair has a little nerve halfway wrapped around it. When you pull on it, you get all that extra tugging. So it's just kind of more feedback. But people make choices about their bodies and they make body modifications all the time. I mean, look, I dye my hair. That's a body modification. Um, some people have pierced ears. My son has a pierced nose. Like, you know, people people do body modifications. People get tattoos. You know, some are permanent, some are not permanent. And so I just think we should view it as a body modification. And if that's what you like, sometimes there's consequences. And, you know, if, if you're okay with, you know, if you remove your pubic hair and your skin is drier, then you might have to use a moisturizer. Okay. Being aware that definitely we see people with cuts and abscesses and complications and, you know, you just have to get all the information and make the choice that works for your body. Now to get unrelevant, would you like to play a game show? Sure. Bring it on. Okay, great. So you and Gabby are my contestants in this game called Hypotheticals. I'll give you a series of scenarios. You can ask any clarifying questions you have, and then you tell me what you would do in those scenarios. Um, And then I just get to decide if I like your answer. Okay. It's not fair and it's not based in science. (laughs) (laughs) So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You have been married to your spouse for eight years, and not once have you ever heard him laugh out loud. He says he just isn't a laugh out loud type of person. But then one night you go see live stand-up, and this one comic has him laughing so hard he cries. Would you stay with this laugh cheater? So he he never thinks I'm funny. He says he thinks you're very funny, but just he's not a but he never laughs out loud. And then this one female comic makes him cry laughing. Oh, I'd stay. That wouldn't bother me. It wouldn't bother you? No, no, that's okay. It depends on the premium you put on being funny, I guess. I would yeah. feel I would feel bad because I like when my partner is dying laughing over something I said. Even if, honestly, like I would say 40% of the time, I don't know what, why what I said was funny. And Mal still laughs. So I'm going to say that I will I will leave for my own bruised ego. <laughs> Is the comic my partner's actual soulmate? Yeah. Sorry. Oh. I'm sorry, Jen. They leave you for the comic. And it turns out they do laugh out loud. They just never for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so one aspect of this game is that even though neither of us believe in soulmates, Allison does know who everyone's soulmate is. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, I'm all powerful in this universe. (laughs) Gotcha. And people have soulmates, apparently. There's a whole cinematic universe happening in hypotheticals. (laughs) Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, eight, knows how to swim, but is afraid of the water. To help them get past this fear, you get them a puppy, but put the puppy on a raft in the middle of your pool and tell your kid that in order to keep the puppy, they have to swim and get it. And if they don't swim to get it, you are returning the dog to the shelter. Are you a terrible parent? Yes, you're an awful parent. (laughs) Why? Oh my God. Well, you, you're totally going to traumatize and you should not go back on deals. Threats shouldn't be part of it. And learning to swim is super important. So if you can't teach your kid how to swim, then you should hire someone who can. 
The kid knows how to swim. They just have a fear of the water. Yeah, no, I wouldn't it's still do that. terrible. Yeah. Do they get the puppy? Yeah, they end up going and they get the puppy and then they feel victorious and they, they save this puppy's life and they get the puppy. But overall, I think, yeah, it's pretty bad to do that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think if they got the puppy, then it worked, didn't it? But maybe you traumatized them. How bad could it be if there's a puppy at the end of it? I don't know. If you think that your puppy's going to get sent back, that's pretty traumatic. It is pretty traumatic. I am looking at my angelic dog right now. I mean, how how many people have been traumatized by um, Old Yeller, right? Or you know, Where the Red Fern Grows. Those are like really traumatic. I still have not got over watching Where the Red Fern Grows. And then, of course, <laughs> I got out. I went and found the book and read it because I had to torture myself some more. So. <laughs> oh, my God. I won't watch or read anything if an animal dies. But here's the thing. Okay, yes, generally, but John Wick is incredible. I will watch it because of that. He goes on a rampage in honor of his dog. Yeah, but Sorry the dog for, still dies. The dog does die. Not interested. <laughs> Sorry for the spoilers for John Wick. <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this a date? You've been on the phone with Geico for over an hour because someone opened a fraudulent account in your name. Fuck off, Allison. <laughs> this definitely happened to me. Okay. While the customer service representative is waiting for their computer to reload because they are having technical problems, you start to talk about all sorts of things, including their parents' recent health difficulties. During the course of the intimate combo, they ask if you live alone or with a partner. Is this a date? Oh, it's creepy. <laughs> but you've really been bonding with this person for over an hour. Oh, well, you know... I Maybe, yeah, I don't ever tell anybody if I'm single or not or live with anybody. That's like a hard stop. Yeah, they could break in. Let yeah. me ask you a question. Do you have a partner? No, you're single and ready to mingle. And where does this person live? That's difficult. You don't know where they live. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> they're at a call center. And have I been sharing things about my life? Yeah, it's been like one of the most wonderful conversations you've ever had. Okay, I think it's a date. <gasps> Yeah, I think at least it's a meet cute. Your address is on file so they know where you live. <laughs> God, that's fucking terrifying. <laughs> okay, I take it back. I take it back. Jen's right. It's creepy. Too bad they're your soulmate. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, but they live seven states over. Wait, how could I have two? How could I have two soulmates? Yeah, I lost my. Oh, no, wait. The, that was your partner's soulmate. Yeah, my partner's soulmate. Right. Also, right. Ever heard of polyamory? Ever heard of uh, soulmate polyamory? <laughs> but what's exciting is that they real they end up figuring out who opened that fraudulent account and they save you from having a bad credit score. Well, they're they're a good person doing their job. <laughs> we love boundaries. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This was so informative and helpful. Where can people find out more about everything that you do? Sure. So people can find me at uh, on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter, on Instagram at Dr. Jen Gunter, on TikTok at Dr. Jen Gunter, and Facebook, Dr. Jen Gunter. I know I'm really original. And um, and my blog, which is The Vagenda. So thevagenda.com with a J. Amazing. Wow. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you guys take care. It was super nice to meet you. Thank you. Right. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about fostering pets.
that's just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby, baby. I like to end on. I think this will be a lighter topics, but who knows? It might also be heartbreaking. What's going on? You foster a lot of dogs. Well, not really. So I have I have this very complicated relationship with fostering animals where I really want to foster dogs, but it's also really hard. And I've had a couple of times where I've had to take the dog back because it didn't get along with sugar. And uh, some people in my life don't think it's a good idea for me to foster. But why? Because it's like been difficult and there's been issues. And like the thing that I feel like a lot of people say about fostering animals is like that it'll be too hard for them and that like to like, you know, that they won't be able to like let the dog or an or cat or whatever animal go to another home would be too difficult. But the way that I've sort of like been reframing it is like I view it as volunteer work and volunteer mm. work isn't always great. A great time. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you do volunteer work in other communities, like a lot of times it's going to be emotionally draining. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. And so I think because pet ownership is often viewed as something that like just brings us joy, mm-hmm. like you sort of like extend that to fostering, but fostering is actually like volunteerism. Yes. And so that's why I'm like, yeah. So like when I'm cleaning up this dog's poop from like this last song that we had, and I'm like wary to share this because I don't want to discourage people from fostering animals. But also the reality of it is, you know, like this last dog we had, and part of this is on me that I should not have let him in my room by himself, even though I was checking on him every 10 minutes, he somehow in those 10 minutes shit all over the bed and peed on the pillow. Um, and then was pooping and peeing throughout the house. But the reality is, is like, he wasn't house trained. He was found in a backyard. Like, I don't think he'd ever lived in a home before. And like the opportunity to get to like, even just for two days before he got adopted, like get him used to a home, get him used to like, uh, cuddling with the human. Like when I kissed his head, you could tell he'd like, hadn't been kissed before and didn't understand like what that was. And like, was like confused by the sound of it, you know? And like, Yes. When I was like, when there was poop everywhere and I was like changing my sheets and then poop leaked out on my like kitchen cushions. And I had to build this barricade to try to keep him in the kitchen because I had forgot, I had like stupidly not taken a crate from the rescue organization. (laughs) Like, you know, like, yes, that was overwhelming, but also it is like so wonderful to like get to do this like mitzvah for these animals. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like, yes, it was like so hard when like he did get adopted and now he's with another family, but it's really like looking at it as like a mitzvah and as like some, a a really like tangible way that you can give back without leaving your own home, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that you've had some emotional stuff around like dogs that you loved and wanted to keep and had to let go. Yeah. But a, a tip that I have is to foster a kind of dog that you wouldn't want to keep if that makes sense. Oh, okay. So like for me, like sugar is a very low, low activity dog. And so if I wanted to get a second dog, which obviously I do, I would want a dog that was a bit more playful, more loving, maybe more likely to like swim in a pool with me or like run around or like, you know, and so if I foster like an elderly chihuahua, (laughs) that's not the kind of dog that I would want to keep anyway. And so it's a lot easier to feel like, oh, I'm giving back. But it's like a dog that like I wouldn't, you know, it makes more sense for them to be in a different home anyway for someone that's looking for a dog that's more like that. Mm -hmm. 
I uh, I worry that I would get attached, but I've never I've never fostered a dog. The only experience I have is that when the girl who was fostering beans, I adopted him and she went to give him to me. She started sobbing. Yeah. And she was like, I and I was like, I felt like a monster. I was like, should I uh, like, what? and she was like, it's okay. No, I have too many dogs. I can't keep him. Like, it's okay. Like, this is what's supposed to happen. Just go. And I was like, wow, she's this dog must rule because she is hysterical. But so many things involve complicated emotions. And right. I don't think I don't think that I guess you have to be the sort of person where like you can compartmentalize where you can like feel that sadness, but also be like so proud of yourself and like into the fact that you like helped this dog. Yeah, she checks on him. She oh. like follows him on Instagram and checks on him and stuff. I don't want to brag, but Beans is kind of famous. <laughs> like, this is like kind of off topic. But I so like, obviously, because of the pandemic, I haven't gone into his new vet. So you just hand him out the window and then the vet tech takes him. So I've never been in. Now they're letting people in with masks. I walk in with Beans. The whole place goes insane. The whole really? place. Everyone is like, Beans! Oh, my God, you're Beans' owner. We love him. And I was like, what is going on? Are you like a celebrity? Like, what the fuck? And they were all, and then like a person would walk by and go, beans. And I was like, what is going on? And then like the one time I left him there and the doctor, he, his usual doctor was booked solid. So I had to give him to a different doctor. Then she called me and was like giving me the rundown. I was like, I thought that you weren't, you were busy today. And she was like, I was, but then I walked past beans and I was like, how can I let him see someone else? And I was like, (laughs) Wow. That's so wild. And then I was talking to Mel and I was like, like, isn't it weird that like Beans has friends we don't know about? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, dogs are amazing. And I also think there's something to like, it depends on what rescue you're working with. But like, there's a lot of foster dogs that I wouldn't feel comfortable taking. And so I just don't take those. So Mm -hmm. you can like, like this groomer, be kind of specific about the types of dogs that you're willing to take and, and thoughtful about when in your life you have the time to take them and how Mm -hmm. much, you know, and like, this isn't like a decision. You should just like go into willy nilly and be like, give me any dog for any amount of time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like, you can be thoughtful about it. And like, you know, so I tend to take, I can only take dogs that get along with other dogs. Right, I, right, right. You know, like I, I prefer to take hypoallergenic dogs when possible. I tend to take smaller dogs, you know, and so you don't have to just be like, well, I'm fostering, so I shall take this pregnant pit bull with yeah. that's going, and, and help it give birth to eight puppies, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's different levels of fostering, but um, I just really, it's been one of my favorite things that I've been able to do. And it's just something like I wanted to to talk about and like kind of spread spread the word about in a way. Also, the dog that shit everywhere got adopted after two days. Yeah. Wow. When we went to pick him up, we knew that he had a meet and greet on Friday. Got it. But I'll be honest, like th- there was like after that first day, I-, I emailed and was like, I'm sorry, but this house is this dog is not housebroken at all. And like, I don't know how to house train a dog. And therefore, if they don't get adopted, I think they should yeah. go to a foster with more experience with that. And then in the next 24 hours, John and I just so fell in love with this dog that like I emailed back being like, actually, I'll figure it out. If, if, this, dog, if this dog doesn't get adopted, I'll we'll figure it out. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but then he did get adopted and it's, you know, and that's wonderful. But it, I don't know. It's just like a really cool life experience that I think if you if you frame it correctly in your mind, then you can like, yes, there will be 
difficulties and there will be the loss of like when and if they do get adopted. But it's also like just looking at it as volunteer work and as a mitzvah and as something you're doing for this other thing versus like, oh, this thing makes me feel good, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It can be really powerful and wonderful. I love that. But I'm always like in a constant state of like, I should be fostering, even though like maybe it's not the right, you know, the right time mm-hmm. for me or there aren't the right type of dogs at the rescue I work mm-hmm. with. And yeah, so it, it it is like one of the most complicated parts of my life, but it also has brought me a lot of joy. Oh, that's really sweet. So now are you going to foster it starting tomorrow? I want to so bad, Mal. I always say I'm like already like, well, you know, if Beans passes away, like I'll get another dog. And Mal was like, don't you want like a few years like, you what? know, to not... I know. Years? I'm getting a new dog the next, that day. I, here's what I want. I'm like, as soon as Beans turns like 12, he's like eight now. As soon as he turns like 12, we should get another dog. And I was like, in that way, if Beans passes away, we already have this other dog at home. So I won't be as sad. And Mal was like, uh, I don't know if that's how that works. But- yeah, you'll still be as sad. But I, I can't imagine having more than a week in my life where I don't have a dog. That's mine. I, this is dark, but I've been like, if they, if they ever have to put him down, I'll be like, take me as well. (laughs) (laughs) I love him so much. Yeah. It's wild. They're just, sugar just like rubbed on me for like a while yesterday in this way that like she doesn't always. And it was like an extended amount of like interaction for the two of us. It was was so moving. Yeah. I, the way that I, I was like, I hold Beans' head and I'll be like, I got you to look at you and enjoy it. I got you for my enjoyment. So, right. That's the wrong approach to fostering. Got it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. Melissa, do you want to come in and talk about uh, pets? I love pets. But you don't have a pet. I don't have one because I was living in a place that was very small. But now <gasps> I have more room. Dog, oh, dog, 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 my dog, dog. God. Is it time? Do you, are you after thinking about? I, after I unpack and everything, then yeah. Dog, 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 dog. So my recommendation to you is to foster to adopt. Okay. To, to make sure that like, because uh, I'm assuming you're going to rescue a dog. Or else we'd have no, to just I'm, never. I know I'm going to like. I've already got someone like using stem cells and stuff to create a dog. For me. <laughs> <No>! <laughs> it's so funny because I don't have any Republican friends, but I do have friends who have bought from breeders, and it's like really tough for me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I get it. I get it. I feel very weird about that. I'm not okay with it. Uh, no, I don't all. like it. <sighs> Makes me freak out. But um, so. Why you should foster or adopt is because that way you can make sure that like this dog is like works with you and your lifestyle. And like, obviously, when you have a rescue dog, they're not going to be their true selves right away. Mm -hmm. But just so you get a sense of it can be good. I think. Can I just say beans? I had beans for a full year and a half before he barked, before he started barking. And then I was like, you don't bark. What is this? But his real personality came out. Although Mal thinks that he learned how to bark at the dog park and we had him hanging out with bad influences. Interesting. (laughs) If you buy a puppy, you don't know what that puppy's personality is going to be. Right. 100%. But I think there is a cool opportunity with certain rescues where you can have like kind of like a trial period to see it. And even if that doesn't work out, then you gave this dog a wonderful home during that trial period. Mm -hmm. So, oh my God, I'm so excited for you to get a dog. So what do we rate this episode? I rate it 11 out of 10 boundaries regarding your child. Ooh, love it. Melissa? 
Um, first, I just want to say that the first email that I sent to Dr. Gunter was on October 3rd, 2019. So it's almost two years to the day that wow. we first reached out. So I'm happy that we finally got her on. Never give up. Never surrender. Right. <laughs> Wow, wow. Um, so I want to rate this 150 out of 100 Vagendas. Yes! Nice. I love it. And I will rate it 27 out of 21 pooches. Pooches! Well, thank you to Dr. Jennifer Gunter for being our guest after two whole years. <laughs> <laughs> Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also on Instagram at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, and at She Is Not Melissa. Bye! Forever! Dog!